Can you hear me up the back? Yes? Excellent. Good. Can you turn to Luke up the back and down the front? If you'd like to turn to Luke, we're starting now, having finished 1 Corinthians, a series in Luke. The good news according to Luke. Luke writes this good news, addressing it to a man called Theophilus. Um, There are some things we know about Theophilus and Luke, some things we don't know about them. We um, think that perhaps Luke was a doctor and a companion of the Apostle Paul and got many of his accounts of the good news about Jesus from Paul and eyewitnesses to the things that Jesus had done. Theophilus we don't know much about. Um, One of the traditions is his surname was Thistler. Um, It's not a well-known fact, but it's, it's not gospel, but Theophilus Thistler is reported by some people to be his name, if you know the song. But um, we do know that Theophilus means beloved of God. Luke addresses this good news to the beloved of God. And as the other three Gospels are written with a broad audience in mind, it does seem to me at least a little strange that he wouldn't, in writing Luke part 1 and Luke part 2, the Acts of the Apostles, have perhaps a broader audience in mind than just one person, Theophilus. Perhaps, as Luke writes to beloved of God, he writes to all who are beloved of God, that they might know and have certainty of the things that they have heard and been taught. But whether it was to one person whose name was Theophilus, the beloved of God, or whether it's written to all Christians the beloved of God. It comes to us. And it comes to us, and then looking at Luke, chapter 1, verses 1 to 25, I wanted to take a quick little look at what three people are doing and what one God is doing. What is Luke doing? What is Zechariah doing? What is John doing? And what is God doing in these few verses? Well, Luke. Luke's not the first writer to narrate the good news about Jesus. He's just the best. Well, who's to say he's the best? But he's certainly the biggest. With the Gospel of Luke, part one, and part two, the Acts of the Apostles, he covers everything from the beginning to the end of the beginning, where the Gospel is going out to the entire world. He wants it all written down, all the parts, all the pieces, all the stories and the sayings, the ones that have been passed on, passed down, passed around. He wants it written down so that they don't get passed over. Luke wants it nailed down with certainty that the death and resurrection not only happened, but happened in fulfilment of the scriptures. Luke wants it nailed down with certainty that repentance and forgiveness of sins are in Jesus' name and for all nations. And he offers us the assurance of certainty 
as he finishes off verse 4. Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you've been taught. He offers us the assurance of certainty based on five things. Firstly, Luke offers the assurance of certainty based on, I was there and I saw it with my own eyes. Luke has gone and talked to the eyewitnesses. The second thing is investigation. Luke has been following these things for a while now, he says. Thirdly, there's the extent of Luke's investigation. He goes all the way back to the beginning, to the birth of Jesus. He goes back even further to the birth of John the Baptist, the prophesied and anticipated prophet who will prepare the people for this day, the day of the Lord. Fourthly, Luke has investigated all things, he says. He's been thorough. And fifthly, to give us the assurance of certainty, there's Luke's methodology. He's been careful. He's followed all things closely. This reads a little bit like the introduction to a scientific lab report. Here's his materials and his methods laid out at the start and the result that he's expecting, all this is supposed to give Theophilus certainty of the things he's been taught. And well, maybe that's not so surprising if Luke's a doctor a bit of a scientific, a bit of a medical man, he writes to give us the reassurance of certainty. Well, how are you doing with that? How's your certainty? Are you confident that Jesus actually and totally died? Do you think that God raised him from the tomb to life again? Do you doubt that he can forgive you for those things you did? Or if you've already repented and asked for his forgiveness, do you have lingering doubts about God's love and forgiveness of you? Do you struggle to believe and live like Jesus is coming back for you? That he will raise you to eternal life and establish his kingdom and justice over all the earth? He said, my kingdom is not of this world, but it will be. There is plenty to the Gospel of Luke. But if any of these uncertainties strike a chord, then Luke is definitely for you. Stick around. Read ahead. Ask lots of questions. The eyewitnesses are long dead. But Luke wrote this down so that we might have reliable answers. Well, now the second guy, Zechariah. What's he doing? Well, what he's not doing is taking the assurance and certainty of God's promise. Even though he gets his own personal appearance of an angel from God to tell him. He says... How can I know this? I don't really think that's possible. 
How dumb. And dumb is exactly what he gets as the certainty of God's word. His sign is his rebuke that he couldn't speak until the baby was born, that these things had come to pass. His sign is his rebuke. And it calls us to trust the assurances that God gives to us. God doesn't say, Luke, trust your feelings. God sends us his son, concrete and real. His son who says, if you've seen me, you've seen the father. Trust in God, trust also in me. God sends us his son and he sends us John to tell us that he is sending his son. Which brings us to person number three, John. What is John doing? Well, he's not doing anything yet. He hasn't been born. Um, But what is he going to do? What he's going to do is what has been prophesied that he will do. He's going to arrive before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. He's going to get people ready. How do you get ready to meet your maker? It's like that joke about Jesus coming back. Jesus is coming back. Quick, everybody look busy. How do you get ready to meet your maker? Repentance. John preached repentance. He came, verse 17 of chapter 1 there, to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. He came to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. It's such a beautiful way to put repentance Sin is, sin is a heart problem. It's not a head problem. Sin is a heart problem. It's not lack of information. Ignorance of the law is not an excuse. Even under Australian law, God's law, his instructions, are not a revelation. They are a clarification, making it clearer of what we already know. We know it's wrong. We know it's bad. But sin is not just unhelpful, selfish, harmful. It's disobedient. It's against God, our maker. John came to turn the hearts of the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Doing what is just is good and right and wise as opposed to dumb, like Zechariah. And if someone, like Zechariah, righteous before God, it says of him, walking in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord, if someone like Zechariah, who was that, can do dumb things, well, so too can we. So repent, be forgiven, get ready.
Get ready for what? What is God doing? Our fourth one. The fourth and final character we're looking at. John is preparing the way for the Lord. And as it said in our Malachi reading, Lo, I will send you the prophet Elijah before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes. That's John the Baptist, a prophet like Elijah. And what happens when the great and terrible day of the Lord comes? The Lord himself comes. That's what God is doing. He's coming. Why is that great? And why is that terrible? He comes with salvation and healing and life. He comes to seek and save the lost. And that's great. And we killed him. And that's terrible. And he's given us all a big time out to think about what we've done. That's what parents do with their disobedient kids these days. You get a time out, and now you think about what you've done. And God has given us 2,000 years, a big time out, to think about what we've done. Collectively, as humanity what we've done individually, inhumanely. For when we disobey our maker, we sin against our nature. We act inhumanely. And yet, that has become second nature to us. And when the time is up, God will return to judge the saviour who we killed. He will return to clean house. And he doesn't use a vacuum cleaner, because that would suck. He doesn't give it a light dusting with the duster or use a broom. He won't use a hose. Have you ever cleaned out house with a hose? Have you ever felt like it? After everyone's gone home and you're left with the enormous mess, do you sometimes wish you could just take the hose and hose it all out the back door? God did. It was called the flood. God cleaned house with a hose. Next time, he's going to use a blowtorch. You spark it up, And it's all yellowy and smoky. And then you crank up the blowtorch with the oxygen until it's a blue, roaring scalpel. Flames is what he will return to judge with next time. Have you ever felt like it would be easier to clean house just by chucking in a match and start building again rather than tidying up? Sometimes it's a big mess. God doesn't need us or our house. God has got his own. Jesus said, it has many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. 
and I will return that you may be where I am. And the space of God will once more overlap with our space. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth and the dwelling of God will once be more amongst men. And God will replace Jerusalem with the new Jerusalem. And we will dwell with him and he with us. Are you preparing for his return? Will we listen to Luke and all his eyewitnesses? Will we listen to John, the voice of one crying in the wilderness? Will we listen to God's angels or be dumb like Zechariah? Will we take hold of the certainty that Luke is going to carefully lay out for us? The day of the Lord has dawned and is upon us. Jesus is coming. Prepare ye the way of the Lord.